All right, here we go, everyone. Welcome to Outside the Studio. I'm so excited to use that word. Uh, uh, Taylor and I were just talking about <laughs> how excited we are to have this conversation. So I'm excited to introduce you to, introduce you to Taylor Elise Morrison, who's a very authentic, this is the word that kept coming to my mind when I was learning more about uh, Taylor's very authentic voice, um, very raw. Uh, she talks a lot about self-care, um, she is a speaker, a facilitator, host of her own podcast, Inner Warm Up Podcast, um, and the founder of her company, Inner Workout, which is also a book, which came out uh, last March, I believe, March 14th. Um, and so I'm just excited for you all, if you haven't come across Taylor's work, to now be introduced to it. She's such a warm, honest uh, personality, and it to me makes Things like self-care and mental health, really these things that aren't these ethereal, like, oh, platitudes, things that we are like, oh, here's these tips, tricks, and 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 tools we can try, but we never really try them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we keep accumulating all of this knowledge, all of this education. At least this is me. I can speak for myself when I say this. And then it's like the overwhelm about all these tools we have. So I really love Taylor's approach to self-care and mental health, because to me, it feels like there's so much compassion. There's so much invitation. There's so much freedom and autonomy in it that it doesn't feel overwhelming. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Taylor. Taylor, how wow. are you today? I'm doing so much better since I heard that lovely introduction. And um, when we were talking before, I thought you were just going to like read my bio, which I normally cringe at because there's something awkward about hearing the bio, but that was just so heartfelt. I was just sitting there like, Taylor, receive this, receive these kind words. So thank you so much. I feel so welcomed. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. And you know what? You're bringing up a topic that it, this is something that my partner and I talk about often in terms of being able to receive a compliment. I think it's a skill. I think that it's for me, something I have to practice. And it's something that I talk to my partner a lot about with also, because he has a hard time hearing compliments. Like I like to tell him he's pretty because he's, he's a gorgeous man. Um, and he, he has a hard time hearing that. So I appreciate you. You know, it's, I, I don't know what that is. I think there there's, um, something about maybe it's culture. I'm not sure if it's self-confidence, maybe it's both. I, it must be more nuanced than that, I'm sure. But what is it about accepting a compliment that is so challenging for us? Do you have any thoughts on this, Taylor? Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I definitely think for me, because I can only speak from the eye, I think of a few things. I think of like being socialized as a woman, which is interesting that you say that your partner who's a man has that experience, but I'll get to some other theories that I have in a moment. But I think there's something in being socialized as a woman where like, at least what I saw modeled to me a lot was someone getting a compliment and then almost the polite thing to do was to downplay it. Like, oh, this old thing, or, oh, I just got this on the sale rack or, oh, like it's, all, it's partly a making things look easy. It's partly a false modesty that women are like supposed to have. Um, that's in quotes. And the other things that come to mind are, I grew up like in the Midwest and in the church. And there's something about, again, this idea of like trying to be humble and not accepting a compliment makes us humble, which 
isn't true. Like you can receive the words that someone is saying and still be grounded and humble and not have it like inflate your ego. But to use the word inflate again, or really conflate, I think that we tend to conflate like receiving any nice thing about us with us being egoic, even though unless we fished for the compliment, we didn't ask for that. That's just like a gift someone tried to give us. And it would be so rude in any other context to like have someone give you a gift and be like, no, take it. Actually, I don't need this gift. Actually, here's why I'm like, why this gift doesn't matter to my life. If you think about it in any other context, it would be so weird. Yeah. I love that. I think it's so true. And I think that's what I was trying to get to. Thank you for putting words to something that I was having a hard time articulating, which is the humility that feels it's almost self-deprecating, right? I don't think it serves us so much to the extent with which we put ourselves down when we really probably could use that compliment and take it to heart. What else were you going to say about from the lens of the male? I was curious. Yeah, I think I was wondering like where your partner is from, but I do think that like, again, being from the Midwest, there is this idea of like Midwest nice, which is like, you're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to be grounded. And like, you're not, not only should you not like need the compliment, but like, it's more polite to deflect it. So does your partner is he a Midwesterner by any chance? No. So this is interesting. And I, I, I love that you asked this. He's actually from Mexico. Um, interesting. Grew up in Mexico, lived in, uh, the state of Guanajuato until he was about 25 and moved to the United States at that age. And I have my own theories about why it's hard for him to accept compliments. Although I'm not going to sit here and pontificate for him. <laughs> but yeah, he's from Mexico. So the other thing that I was going to bring up is that like I am speaking from my experience as like a black woman raised in the Midwest in the United States, mm-hmm. but there also are cultures where that is what you you are supposed to deflect a compliment. Mm-hmm. Like in the way that there are certain ways if we're like thinking back to um, what is the name of the person who used to like talk about what miss what manners are like miss manners would say like here's how you accept a gift graciously other cultures equivalents of miss manners would say like you're actually supposed to deflect someone offers you something and you're supposed to deflect so I wonder how I don't know enough about like Mexican culture but I have definitely seen in other cultures where the expectation is you're offered something and you need to deflect it sometimes a certain amount of times before it's polite to accept it. And I wonder if that carries over into how people feel they're allowed to receive compliments. There's also like some gender dynamics too, like depending on the compliment, what we feel more or less comfortable receiving based on our gender identity and expression. Totally. Yeah. Oh, that's so insightful. What a fun conversation we're having already. (laughs) There's a lot of topics I want to cover with you today, Taylor. Among them are ADHD and neurodivergence. Um, Definitely want to talk about self-care before, as my pre-work to prepare for this interview, I had the pleasure of getting to listen to your podcast, Inner Warm-Up. And um, I was on this series or season finale, um, which we're talking about burnout. And I think I want to start there at burnout. 
um, because it's personally, I so resonate with everything that you were saying. I find it such a helpful and relevant conversation and you made me think about it in such a different way. I hadn't actually thought about it like this before. Um, what I took away from that was this idea that it could be that I'm burning out because I care too much about something, whether that be work or family or, you know, parenthood or whatever it is that I, I care too much about it. I don't I don't even know if I want to say too much, right. But I care so much. I'm working maybe a little bit too hard and I'm burning out. So I'd love to hear you, you know, I'm not asking you a specific question. There's a lot of you, that podcast is so great. I'm going to link to it in the show notes so that anyone who wants to listen to it can go find it easily. But I, I would love to, to hear your thoughts. And because that, that podcast, that specific episode came out in March of 2023, I believe. Was it 2023 or 2022? Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a minute. Yep. What are your thoughts on it these days? Yeah. Um, doing that podcast season was so cathartic for me in a lot of ways. Like the reason I started my work around self-care and my company inner workout was because I have had so many experiences with burnout. And the more that I learn about it, the more that I realize the way that we talk about burnout, at least the way I've seen it talked about in our culture is often like you're working so hard, you're doing so much in your job. And like, that's why you're getting burned out, which there's a whole other conversation to be had about like the expectations of work. Um, and that workplaces can put on us the unreasonable expectations that can be placed on us. But when I was writing my book and I was writing the piece about burnout, something that really struck me was that Originally, burnout was something that they talked about in like nurses and nurses have such my mother-in-law is a nurse and she cares so, so much about her patients. And then I think about like me being an entrepreneur and so many of my friends who are entrepreneurs, they care so, so much about what they're building. And I think that care and connection are really at the root of burnout. So we'll probably talk about this later, but in my work, I talk about five dimensions of well-being and the bliss dimension is all about connection to yourself, to your community and to something bigger than you. And I find that when I'm the most burned out and when the people I observe are the most burned out, they're disconnected from one of those places. And that's doubly hard for them because they care. They care about their communities or they care about the connection that they've cultivated to something bigger than them. And caring is such a beautiful thing. Like my whole career is rooted in having conversations about care and care does make us a little bit more susceptible to burnout because like when I think about jobs I didn't care about, I was maybe disengaged. There might've been times where I was feeling like depressed, but I wasn't burned out by that because I didn't care enough to be burned out. I wasn't putting in the effort. I was annoyed. I was ready to go, but I wasn't burned out. Yeah. I love that perspective shift. And sometimes that's what I was saying. in as I was introducing you to listeners is that this specific topic, this specific uh, podcast episode illuminated for me, why the work that you're doing is um, it feels accessible. It feels like it's not one more thing that I have to put on my to-do list because 
all it took for me was to listen to that conversation that you had. And it was a perspective shift and something felt lighter instantly. I didn't have to do anything. I was sitting there listening to your podcast and it wasn't one more thing that felt like, oh, I have to put this. Now I have to have this as my daily ritual. Now I have to have this as part of my daily practice. No, it was just like, oh, maybe you're just acknowledging that you care too much or that you care so much that time to take a break. Um, it just felt like such an, a nice light invitation to acknowledge something different. I love that. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about you. You brought up, I'm not sure who this is, the lazy genius. But you brought up the lazy genius in terms of, um, well, maybe you want to talk about. It. Do you want to? Do you want to explain what the lazy genius? Yeah, is? Yeah, and honestly, her real name is escaping me right now. But she has a podcast, and I think multiple books in the like lazy genius vein. Uh-huh. And her whole concept is like she works a lot with overachievers who also happen to be a lot of the people who are drawn to my, my work, and it's just like figure out what you want to be a genius at and then allow yourself to be lazy at everything else. And that like, talk about a perspective shift that I don't even like super follow her work, but I just remember someone explaining that concept to me. And I was like, Oh, there's so much freedom in that because what I have been trying to do, especially when I'm burned out is trying to be a genius at everything. And what I realize is there are actually a few things that I need to be genius at and everything else I can like bring in support or I cannot worry about it as much. I was actually just talking to my therapist yesterday about like cooking and how I enjoy cooking at certain times, but like some of my friends love to cook like three meals a day for themselves that are gorgeous and like realizing most of the time I'm going to eat in a way that like tastes good and is utilitarian. And then like When I like to be a genius, it's like making a nice weekend meal for myself. I love making like a Friday evening meal for myself. That's where I want to be genius. The rest of the week, I can be pretty lazy about it. Um, So that's kind of the concept behind it. And hopefully I'm doing doing it justice. But you can go into the whole lazy genius universe if you want. Yeah, no, thank you. That's so helpful. I love that. The, then the one other quote I wanted to pull out, which is very closely related, and I think you were talking about these two things in tandem, was a quote that you had, I believe it was your college dorm room by David Allen. Is it's Yeah, you I could think, do anything, but not everything. Yes, that one. Very related to this yeah. idea, right? So uh, how did you come, how did you find this quote? In, you're fairly young in college, right? So this stuck out to you then. What was it? What was it about that quote that had you, I mean, out of all the quotes in the world that you could choose to put on your college dorm room in your twenties, maybe your late teens, that's something that you chose. Will you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I definitely was a Pinterest girly. So I'd spend a lot of time finding quotes. I actually wrote my college essay about quotes and like the power of quotes. So that's just something I have an affinity for. I'm deeply honored whenever someone quotes me because it's like, I've like made it into this hall of quotes um, for someone else because quotes have been really powerful for me. I don't remember exactly what mind state I was in, but like at that point I had undiagnosed ADHD and my tendency has always been to do a lot of things And I think the curse is that I can do a lot of things like mediocrely well, 
I don't know if that's a word, but we're making it a word today or like slightly either mediocre or like slightly better than average. And so when that's the case, I'm like, oh, well, I should just do everything. And so there's something for me in that of like acknowledging that I will figure stuff out. Like I really, that's one of the things I love about myself is that I'm really scrappy and I can figure out a way to do everything to, or to do anything, but I don't have to do it all just because I can figure out how to do it. Doesn't mean I need to. And I think that was like me inviting myself to find the distinction between like what I can do and what I would benefit from doing what I'd be energized by doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Wow. I would love to read that essay, that college essay that you wrote about quotes. That sounds really interesting. Um, So you brought up ADHD. You were undiagnosed. When did you, when did this come into your realm of consciousness? Is it something that you wanted to look closer at, address, um, seek further help or solutions around? Um, yeah, we're coming up uh, on a year as of the time that we're recording this. And so it's still like relatively new in the grand scheme of my life. I uh, did not think that I was someone who could have ADHD, if that makes sense. Like the person who I think of like growing up, I went to a school that was, I went there from third grade through high school through like 12th grade. So I literally grew up with a lot of these people. And I remember someone getting diagnosed with ADHD and he had like Play-Doh that he could play with in his hands in fourth grade and like had different accommodations. And for me, I was just like, I don't act like him. So I couldn't have ADHD. Um, what happened really was that I started seeing people in my life who I felt like I had some level of similarity with getting diagnosed with ADHD. Um, Also, I just think more, there's a lot more research to be done on women in ADHD and how it can show up in different ways. I think for me, essentially what happened was I, I say like, there's kind of three S's where I was socialized as a girl especially a black girl in a predominantly white white environment. And so there was this like sense that I didn't feel like I was able to act out. And even if I was bored or disengaged, like I can remember I'm diagnosed with inattentive. So I do some hyperactive things, but not enough to qualify as like um, the full that hyperactive. And so I can remember like being bored, but instead of like getting up and doing an outburst in class, I would like write song lyrics and like doodle, or I would like fidget my toes in my shoes. So no one could see that I was fidgeting, but I was fidgeting those types of things because it was like, I'm not just representing me. I'm representing my race. And I feel like I need to like hold it together for the black people, essentially. Um, The other thing is that like, I'm smart. And I don't say that from like an egoic way, just like I tended to do decently well in school. And so, and I didn't find my school particularly challenging, which is funny because like, I know that wasn't everyone's experience at my school, but for me, it wasn't that hard. So like, I could just kind of skate by a lot of things and it wasn't that difficult. And then the last us is that I had a lot of structure. My mom is a Virgo. My mom cares nothing about astrology, but she's a Virgo and she's like a Virgo in every sense of the word. She loves going to the container store. She'll tell me about like the new vacuum cleaner that she got that she's so excited about. And so 
like I had parents who put me in after school activities and over the summer I'd have things to do and they'd get me like learning workbooks that I'd have to do over the summer. So they created so much structure. And then when I went to college, that was the first time I was like, everyone is as smart as me, if not more smart than me, smarter than me. And my, like nothing is making me have structure. I have to create the structure. And my first semester of college was like really hard. And then grow like when I got older, and I quit my full-time job. And then I was in charge of creating structure in my life. It got even more hard. So there's just a lot of things where I'm like, I seem to have a really high capacity to do things, but I also feel like I need a lot of stimulation and I really struggle with structure. I think I might have ADHD. And then my sister, who's 15 years older than me at about the same time, was also talking to my dad about how she thought she had ADHD. Her daughter has um has ADHD, a pretty extreme ADHD. And she hadn't really thought that she had it. And so we both got diagnosed around the same time. And then my dad was like, oh yeah, my dad's in his sixties. He's like, oh yeah, I'm like pretty sure I have ADHD. I just never got diagnosed because I didn't see the point because I'm handling it fine. So it turns out it was actually in my family the whole time. That was a long story. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's important. I think it's important to give it context, give it history, um, uh, give us the nuance that has meaning for you. And oftentimes someone else can see themselves in your story, right? Um, and to me, that's what creates a sense of connection. The term I also wanted to define and make sure that I understand when I use it is neurodivergence. When I hear that word, I think this is a type of superpower for for you. And I'm not sure if I'm using it correctly. I'd like to hear your definition of neurodivergence, but it is similar to what I was saying before we hit record around. You said you were, um, it feels like you've lived two days uh, this morning in the span of, I, I don't know, maybe like six hours, I think you said. Um, and, and you were explaining how you were hyper-focused and it was allowing you to get a lot of really good work done. And that was an, uh, um, an effect or a symptom, I think of ADHD. And I would, to me, what struck me was like, wow, that sounds like a superpower. If I could get focused like that and get so much work done in the span of four hours, I might be done for the day. (laughs) So what do you, what does neurodivergence mean for you? Yeah, for me, it just means that my brain works differently. Um, which was very validating. Like as I started learning more, um, especially about like women in ADHD and just realizing that a lot of things that I thought were really just personality quirks were just because my brain actually works differently than, I don't even want to say the average person, but maybe like the typical person or what we see put forth as normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so funny where you're like, if I could get myself to focus for that long, because For me, it's also like if I can get myself to focus that long, like I happen to be really engaged and excited about this project that I'm working on. So it's actually a curse. Like I, I shouldn't say that it is a blessing and a curse because I haven't really been able to fall asleep for the past couple of nights because I like, I cannot turn my brain off from it. I'm literally like, I was in bed for probably 45 minutes. And then I'm yelling to my husband in the next room, like, babe, what do you think about this? Cause like, I'm trying to go to sleep, but I can't, it's just running. And then I wake up and then it kind of picks up. So it's amazing. But that also means that when I don't want to focus on something, when I 
it is not engaging to me. I have to like bring in support to help me do those things. Um, so there's a lot of beauty in it. And as I've leaned in and learned like how to harness it and how to view it as a superpower, there's so much that I appreciate about it. And there are some things that are honestly kind of annoying. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I could see that. I can appreciate that. I'm curious what the diagnosis process has been like for you. And then after diagnosis, what sort of tools and what sort of structure do you put in place to allow yourself to feel like, okay, this is something that um, I understand, I can manage and, you know, move forward with? Yeah, I think I spent a few months before kind of researching and wondering if I had it. And then it kind of came to a boiling point where I realized I have kind of a portfolio career. And I realized like, oh, the reason I have to have a portfolio career is because that's like how I stay engaged in everything. If I have too much of the same thing, I can't stay engaged. I need enough. And I was like, I need enough difference. I need enough like diversity in what I'm doing. Not everyone needs that. Other people can just like kind of do their one thing. Maybe I should really look into this. So I ended up um, getting an appointment pretty quickly and kind of going through the questionnaire. I also like ADHD became my hyper focus. So I like, I'm very good at Googling things and finding stuff. So I found like a pretty in-depth diagnostic tool that like therapists use. And I worked through it myself to be like, what are the examples from childhood now that I have this framing where I can see how this came up and like really went through it myself mm -hmm. and then came to that meeting with like, these are the examples of how I think this shows up, um, how I've seen it show up. I also asked, I've been with my husband not married for 12 years, but we've been together for 12 years. So he's seen me for a long time. I asked my parents and like really grounded myself in the fact that this could be a real possibility before I went in. Um, and they basically went through the same questionnaire because I had <laughs> looked up what a questionnaire is. They went through more or less the same questionnaire, um, asked some additional questions. And then yeah, I got diagnosed. I started, I sought out a therapist who specialized in ADHD. And for me, what was surprising is that it's been less about getting tools. I'm a pretty self-aware person. And I essentially realized that my whole life and career, especially like after I started really pursuing entrepreneurship has been like the series of giant coping mechanisms that I've built for myself, mm -hmm. where I have a lot of autonomy, where I have a lot of freedom to do things the way that work for my brain. So it was more like leaning into those. And also a lot of the work that my therapist has helping, helped me do over the past few months has been around like really accepting the fact that my brain works differently and that there are levels of support that I need that I feel like I shouldn't need but that I do. So like, again, around cooking, it's like, why is it so hard for me sometimes to just feed myself? Like I have a fridge full of lovely food and it can be so hard to like, think about, even if it's just making a smoothie, I'm like, then I got to get the fruit. Then I got to put it in the blender. Then I got to put the almond milk. It feels like too much. And so her being like, okay, maybe you need to like get something, grab and go. Maybe you need to have some more pre-prepared meals. And 
realizing that that might be a reality of what I need in order to nourish myself and like working through some of the like guilt or shame, or I should be able to do it. Mm, Yeah. Mm, That's so cool. I love that. I love that realization that what works for the status quo or what we might consider normal doesn't have to work for me and the permission to give yourself it's kind of going back to that lazy genius idea of letting the things that don't have to be your specialty be easy when they need to be. And I think I heard you say this on that podcast episode I was listening to how, or maybe we were just talking about it here. Now conversations are blending together. <laughs> your voice is in my head um, about how um, like a Friday night meal is what you can really spend time on making luxurious, but you know, during the week it can be, um, your grab and go type of thing, you're pre-prepared. So you don't have to think too much about it, but you can also find time to have that luxury around meals and have it be something that's more planned out, more prepared once in a while. It doesn't have to be every day for every meal. Um, So yeah, again, this is the theme here I'm finding. There's a lot of freedom and invitation and autonomy in it. Um, so I, you mentioned the, the, you know, this whole conversation, we're talking a lot about entrepreneurship and, and the work that you do and the work that I do. And I think a lot of listeners will resonate the idea of not the idea, but the practice of there's, there's so many of us that are making this shift from being an employee of a company, whether that be a corporate company or a small business to entrepreneurship and building our own path and creating our own special sauce, our own um, business for ourselves. I wanted to hear about you more specifically about your journey from startup to creating your own business. Um, your thought processes around that things that worked, things that didn't work, failures, successes. That's a lot. So feel free to take whatever out of that you want to focus on. Um, it doesn't have to be all, but yeah. Yeah. So I've always known I wanted to be an entrepreneur or like pretty early on. Um, My mom loves to tell a story about how like my friend and I produced a play on the front steps of our house and charged my parents to sit on the front steps of our house to watch the play and made concessions and charged them for the concessions as well. And my mom was like, okay, yeah, she's probably going to run a business. Um, Now I realize that a lot of it for me, again, is kind of like a coping mechanism where when I run my own business, it's both easier and harder to advocate for myself in the ways that I need. Like I can give myself more flexibility in when I start and end my days, who I choose to work with, how I work. That's really been really beautiful for me. So I started my first like real incorporated business, my second semester, senior year of college. It was a brand strategy firm. Um, Really like consultancy is probably a better way to say it because I realized I can like make business ideas out the wazoo. I love doing the strategy. I love really like thinking through who the target customer is. How do we express the feeling of the brand? And like, instead of starting all these businesses, I could just work with other people to do that for their business. So I kind of started that on the side, my second semester, senior year of college, and then worked in corporate really quickly realized that wasn't for me left, joined a startup as their first full-time employee. And I was really hoping that that would be like it for me because it was pretty small. I got like so much freedom and autonomy. And I talked about how it felt like, like my businesses now feel like my babies 
And that startup felt like my niece. Like I love my nieces and nephews, but at the end of the day, like they get to go home to their mom and I don't have to have all the responsibility for them. And that's how like that being in the startup felt. I went briefly back into a startup owned by the corporation I originally worked with and was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I need to work for myself. So I started like mapping out. I remember talking to my, I call her my friend tour. She's like a very good friend. Also, she's a little bit older than me. And she like will take that mentor role sometime in my life. And I remember her telling me also, she also has ADHD, which she got diagnosed much younger. So she doesn't talk about it as much, but like, I it's just funny looking back and realizing like, oh, I was gravitating to someone who had a very different a very similar personality and like way their brain works to me. And she was telling me like how she made her decisions and how she thinks about entrepreneurship. And so I was on this women's retreat that I was co-leading and I wrote down what needs to happen in order for me to leave my full-time job. It was like, have a certain amount of money, which now I would double or triple that amount of money. It was like, have some clients lined up and like have a part-time job or something like that. And a little bit later, I like maybe a week or two later, I met someone who I thought was going to be a mentor. And at the end of it, he ended up basically offering me like a dream part-time job that became my bridge to get out of my full-time job. So that's something I think I would love to offer to people is that a lot of times it feels either or like I can either work full-time or I'm working for myself. And I'd really encourage people to like, take those bridge opportunities because I think I found for me, it can be a lot of pressure to feel like a business has to support you right away from the beginning. Um, so I was, I left, I thought I was going to grow that brand strategy firm and then kept getting burned out and wanted to build a business that structurally supported me. So I would be less prone to burnout, but also, as I started talking about my own experiences with burnout and self-care more, I found that people were really drawn to the way that I talked about self-care. Um, and that's how inner workout came to be. So I can talk a lot more about like business and failure and all of that good stuff, but that's a little bit of my entrepreneurial backstory. Mm, I love it. Yeah. <clears throat> I think successes and failures, failures in particular, because I think those are the kind of moments where we um, kind of like decision points along the way where we decide, okay, I'm going to learn from this. And I'm going to keep going, or I failed so hard that I'm just going back to employeeship. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it as one right now to borrow your phrase. <laughs> um, so yes, I would definitely love to hear more about that. Um, also definitely want to touch on your book in our workout. And also, I just want to say, I love this title. It's, it grabbed me right away. And it, there was another one of those moments where I had a perspective shift just by reading the title, because for me, it's so easy to, um, to think about things like, um, taking care of my physical body in the way of running or yoga or weightlifting as a workout as maintenance, but I don't often think about mental health practices or self-care practices as, as a workout. And I, that inner workout, just reading that title was like, oh yeah, this is a maintenance practice that just like my physical body needs these maintenance practices to stay agile and mobile as I get older. So does my mind. So does my soul. So does my heart. 
So I just wanted to let you know that I love that name. Um, so yes, please tell us a little bit if there are any highlights of failures, successes that you you think would be helpful or that you really enjoy talking about, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, so we publicly launched in of six months before the pandemic. And the original iteration of Inner Workout, it was called Inner Workout because I developed this map-based practice to help people rooted in yogic philosophy to help people practice self-care. The definition that we continue to use for self-care is listening within and responding in the most loving way possible. And so the idea was that you had like this 45 minutes or 60 minutes where it was really about you cultivating that ability to listen across these dimensions of well-being. And I've like had plans to do a facilitator training and all of this good stuff. And then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And we did end up doing three rounds of that facilitator training virtually. But there was this weird moment where people were so interested in the topic of self-care. And I realized the solution, this map-based practice, wasn't what people actually needed anymore. And I think that's been a through line throughout my business is being really responsive. I, I love this quote. I forget who said it first. Be stubborn about your goals and be flexible with your methods. And if my goal, the vision that I hold is like a, word, a world without burnout, there are a lot of ways to get there. So my initial idea was this map-based practice, but then the world changed. And so I asked myself like, okay, how else could I get work towards that vision? How else could I support people in building the skill of self-care? And that has kind of been the through line is, and now even like we host something called Camp Clarity where we help people build kind of their own inner compass, their own mission, vision, values, and definition of success. Because when you have that foundation, it allows you to like pivot and shift but still have it be really aligned and people can be like, huh, I wouldn't necessarily have done that, but like, I get where they're coming from. Um, I think that's one of my greatest strengths is being willing to pivot. I think I also have, will have shame around that because the perfectionist in me is like, well, why didn't you get it right the first time? Mm -hmm. But like, that's the struggle that I see with myself and other business owners is like, someone said it, I think I heard her name's Michelle Palazon Lipset. She owns holisticism and she talked about like falling more in love with the problem than the solution. I see a lot of business owners fall so in love with their solution to the problem that they can't realize that there's a better way to serve their customer or client. And so the way the places where I failed is where I have gotten so wrapped up in what I think is the solution that I can't see how this quote unquote solution isn't serving me or it isn't serving my customer anymore. And I hold on for too long. Mm. Holding on for too long. That's a topic that uh, personally I struggle with. And I feel like I still, it's almost like that uh, saying, you know, hindsight is 2020. I can't see it until I've realized, oh, I've gone too far. Do you have any advice in terms of, and this might be kind of related to what you're saying in terms of the idea of perfection, wanting to get it right the first time, maybe that's just something we need to learn to let go of. Maybe I need to learn to let go of it, but I wonder if there's a way to, I don't know, sidestep it, speed up the process, see with clarity from the outset. Yeah. I think for me, it goes back to like getting really clear on 
what your mission, your vision, your values, your definition of success are. Um, and then I can see, okay, here's how letting go of this thing brings me, orients me towards these things that I've said are important. What I have seen often happen, like for example, inner workout is no longer really active on Instagram. And it felt like such a should for so long, an external should of like, I should be posting here. I should be engaged. But then when I looked at the overall impact that I wanted to have in people's lives, and I was hearing people say how much distraction social media caused them, I was seeing it wasn't getting the results that I wanted it to get. And so just being able to say, okay, I know what I want, and this isn't actually getting me there. I can let it go. And it feels like a little bit more reasoned, a little bit more data-driven when I have my clear picture of what I'm working towards. But when you don't have that, then you're kind of just by osmosis, taking in everything else that anyone you've ever heard on a podcast or read in a book says is success for them. And you're trying like sometimes even subconsciously to live up to all of those definitions of success, but they can be so far from what you actually want. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice reminder. Thank you. Um, so uh, last thing I want to talk about last topic is the book inner workout. Um, when did you decide to write it? And what were there any, as you're writing, because this is your first book, correct? Yep. When you were writing, um, I'm always curious to hear about processes that work for you in terms of such a massive undertaking is writing a book and, and then putting it out into the world. And so I'd love to hear about any learn any lessons that stuck out for you when you decided to write it and, you know, why, why did you decide to write it? Yeah. So I've always loved reading. Um, some of my earliest memories involve reading my mom before she had me was an English teacher and just like both of my parents really instilled a love of reading in me. And so that's always been something I wanted to do in the back of my mind. I was really fortunate in that an editor reached out to me. She'd written an, an e-workbook that I'd written for inner workout and was like, Hey, would you like a book? Um, and I was like, sure. So it, it kind of just happened. It just came to me. Um, I, uh, the book is about, it really like, I call it kind of my dissertation on self-care. Like I started talking about self-care more publicly in 2018. The book came out in 2023. And so it's like years of me doing this work and leading workshops and working with clients and talking to people, sharing this framework of self-care and the five dimensions of well-being. And I didn't mention this, but when the pandemic hit, one of the first things that I did is I developed this assessment called the Take Care Assessment that measures your well-being across five dimensions. And then it's free to take. You can take it on the website and it offers up some practices, some personalized practices based on your results. And so the book, I kind of talk about it as like kind of a strengths finder for self-care where you're invited to take the assessment. And then the book, the rest of the book is a choose your own adventure. So you can read it front to back, or you can say, I really need to work on the connection to community subdimension. And so I want to flip back to that chapter and it's got practices and prompts and all of these things that you can do to really like 
root into the self-care. It is a book, but there's like so much, it's almost a workbook and that there are so many things that you can do with it. Um, and in terms of what I learned, so I wrote the book, not knowing that I had ADHD, but it's again, funny because like intuitively I was using the Pomodoro method. I was like creating really intentional spaces where I could focus, um, and sustain my focus, but also giving myself enough breaks that I wasn't overloading myself. Um, the biggest lesson I would say that I learned is really like leaning into community. I I was talking to my husband earlier today, like he really stepped up around the house because I couldn't do as much, especially when I was getting closer to deadline. And so he like, we normally split cooking. He did most of the cooking. He did a lot of the cleaning. My parents like stepped in. Someone in an entrepreneurship group I was in let me use his points so that I could take a weekend away to write my book. Like all of these beautiful things where like I love to give to other people. And the book really taught me to learn how to receive from the people in my community and that they like wanted to be there and were willing to show up for me. And a lie that I can tell myself is that like, oh, people don't want to show up for me. They just only want me to show up for them. And the book taught me like, no, 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 Taylor, they're there for you. Wow. What a powerful lesson. That's so amazing. I love that. Um, okay. Well, last, thank you, Taylor. Um, I'm so glad you found community around you. And I also like that you pointed out that your community is inclusive of your family. I often think when I hear community, I think that means I have to go outside of my home environment and look for uh, people I may not know, but you're highlighting the fact that your community is also your partner. Your community is also your parents if you're lucky enough to have them close by. And yes, your community expands beyond your family realm. So thank you for that reminder. Um, so it's been about an hour and that flew by and it was very enlightening and uh, just is lovely to speak with you, Taylor. And so I'm just wondering uh, as a final question, if there's anything that you were hoping to highlight, any question that you wish I would have asked you that you didn't get to speak to. I really loved our conversation, honestly. I don't think I think the only thing that I would offer up to people is like just invitations to notice what you're doing that already serves you. Like that's the thing that my ADHD diagnosis really brought out for me is like opportunities to celebrate the ways that I intuitively was doing things that served me and didn't even realize or acknowledge that I was doing it. And so I think that just might be a nice like little practice for people to do is to take some time to acknowledge and celebrate the ways that you are creating a life that works for you and that honors your needs. Mm. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so cool. Taylor, thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Um, as I said before, for listeners, I'll make sure that uh, the podcast links and the website links and um, book links, which is on Taylor's website. Uh, I'll get into the show notes so that you can easily find her great work and follow along with her journey. Um, thank you so much, Taylor. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new. 
maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.